on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking maths. We've got a couple of mathematicians joining us from the Australian National University. We'll also be discussing Ada Lovelace Day, the applications of maths in different areas of science, and uh, hopefully we'll have some fun with the Ig Nobel Prizes too. All that coming up today on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic. My name's Broderick, and it's fantastic to have you joining us here today for a uh, bit of a different episode of Fuzzy Logic today. Uh, normally we talk science and uh, technology on Fuzzy, and look, I thought we were going to be talking science today, but I've been talking to my guests, and they're not so sure that we're actually doing science here, but we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, as I said, my name's Broderick, and it's fantastic to have you with us, and I'll introduce who I've got in the studio. Uh, joining me is uh, fuzzy regular Alice. Good morning, Alice. Good morning, Broderick. And uh, you're here to help me out and make me feel like less of a uh, number phobe. Uh, Definitely, I am more of a number phobe than you, so good. you're officially not the most number phobiest person in the room. Fantastic. That's good to hear, <laughs> because today we do have two guests joining us from the uh, Centre for Mathematics and its applications at the Australian National University here in Canberra, and they're going to be talking maths with us today. So joining us is uh, Lashi Bandara. Good morning, Lashi. G'day. How you guys going? Good, good. It's fantastic to have you in with us today, and uh, also Alex Amenta is joining us. Hey. Hey, Okay, Alex. Now, guys, um, we're going to start off with the, the, the question, I suppose, is what is maths? Because as students growing up, you know, you do maths at primary school and maybe high school and you go through and it's got this huge stigma attached. Like, I thought science had a bad stigma and I've been working in science for a while, but math seems to have the, that even worse one of just that ginormous groan when the teacher announces that you're doing maths in the classroom. So, for most people, it's viewed as this difficult, this boring, this, this horrible thing. But what is maths for you two? Who wants to kick us off? Look, I'll uh, have a bit of a bit of a go. All right, Lashy. Um, look, this uh, may not be um, a favourable response, uh, maybe if there's teachers listening, but I think I personally found mathematics in school uh, incredibly dry and boring. Okay. And um, I, in fact, started uh, my university life in an art science degree, and uh, I tried to stay away from maths, and I um, did a bit of uh, performing arts, and a bit of philosophy, and um, and I, I certainly prescribed to this point of view that maths was very boring. Um, but I think the, the reason is that in high school you don't really get to see mathematics. You get to see formulas, you get to see a prescription on how to do things. It's, it's a bit like being taught how to drive a car. If real mathematics is, is the process of building a car... You know, driving a car can be a, 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 uh, an exclu- uh, something that's exclusive from the actual process of building a car. Okay. And so, uh, to, to me, mathematics is, is a body of, of knowledge, um, and it's a deductive body of knowledge. Uh, you can only have a theorem if you have a mathematical statement accompanied by a proof. And a proof is something that demonstrates why that statement is true, and that's true for all time. 
Yeah, okay. So that's a very different way of looking at it, I guess, to, to what we do in, in high school uh, there. How about yourself, Alex? What, what's your view on maths? Yeah, so in high school, you're given all these things involving numbers and graphs and things like this, and my students are like, why do I care about numbers and graphs and things? And it, the teacher will say, well, you know, maybe you've got a roller coaster and it's got the shape and you want to see how fast it's going. Get all these really sort of artificial exam questions, right? Uh, yeah. And like last year's right, you're not really seeing maths in high school at all. You're just seeing a bunch of numbers. Like, I mean, the way I see math, it's like the study of patterns and relationships, basically. Like, yeah. how things relate to each other, how patterns behave, just abstractly. Which is what last year means by a deductive sort of... I was going to call it a deductive science, but deductive reasoning. Like, yeah. you've, you assume something about the patterns you're looking at, and you deduce what properties they have. Yeah. And by pure logic, this is true. Like, if you deduce things right... <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, which is very different from science, I guess, where you, you know, you're looking at, at things actually happening in there, and you make a hypothesis, and then you test it, and you keep testing and testing, and then oh, you know, it gets to the point where you're reasonably certain that that what what you reckon is happening in in the scientific world is is right because nothing's proven it wrong so far. Um, but you know, you're looking for that something to prove it wrong, whereas maths is is kind of the opposite. You were saying earlier. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess the concept of, you know, deductive reasoning is probably sort of a, a dual concept to um, induction, which is really what happens in, mm. in science, where you, you know, see some observations, you fit some data. But I think also, I think, I think the relationship between mathematics and science, I mean, even though I do, I say that, and perhaps I exaggerate it for effect, is that <laughs> it is very close to science. I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's really a language. I mean, to me, that's what mathematics is. It's, it's a language. It allows me to make statements, you know, mainly about the world. Um, and, and even though we prove these things in an abstract context, we hope that someone actually goes out there and measures something and says, actually, we can apply this theorem. And the minute you apply that theorem to a piece of observation, you now know something new about it. And that's why it's useful. It's, it's useful because it, it's not a language in this kind of, um, in, the, in the natural sense of a language, but it, it's, it's certainly a language because it allows us to communicate and encapsulate. In fact, Einstein's theory of relativity, uh, a lot of people sort of think that Einstein sort of came up with all of the, the geometric machinery that's necessary for it, but actually it preceded Einstein by 50 years. So it was, it was a colleague of Einstein that told him to look at the work of Bernard um, uh, Riemann, who was uh, the one, he was a student of Carl Gauss, who's known as the Prince of Mathematics. Mm. And, um, and Riemann actually went out and constructed this idea of Riemannian geometry, you know, geometry beyond just the flat Euclidean stuff that we see, uh, where parallel lines can meet, you know, not even at infinity, they can intersect and so on and so forth. And so... Um, so sorry, just, just, just like, ha- parallel lines yeah. can meet? Well, if you, <laughs> yeah, if you, you can take notions of parallel lines, say, on a sphere, yeah. and if you send them far enough, you know, if you start on the equator and you can talk about a notion of what it means for lines to be parallel, mm. actually they'll, they'll meet at the equator. Okay. So it yeah. sort of depends what surface you're working off, I guess, rather than just off a flat piece of paper, maybe That's if you were to exactly bend right. and twist the paper. Ah. It also depends on how you define parallel lines. So mm. when you're talking about parallel lines on a circle, what you really mean are these things called great circles, like the equator, or if you like, take the equator and then you rotate the sphere, you look at one of these equator-like things you get, these are great circles. And these behave exactly as parallel lines behave, except for the fact that two parallel lines will always meet. Right. So can I ask, Lashi, what changed your mind then? What led, led you from being an arts student who was into philosophy and performing arts to finding the maths that you really, really enjoy now? And I guess for both of you, how, how could we make maths more exciting for school students? There's less, oh, maths groaning in school. 
Um, my story is probably a uh, bit long, um, but uh, I, I did do a bit of maths in in, in my first year because uh, I was really interested in computer science, and um, I was interested in notions of logic and so on and so forth, which is why I tried to do a bit of philosophy, but I failed miserably at that. Um, but uh, yeah, I did a bit of maths, and I was really lucky to come across um, uh, a lecturer at Monash, Maria Athanathanis, who. Um, who taught me uh, multivariable calculus and she gave hints um, in the way that she taught about this kind of larger, more beautiful thing that I now know as mathematics and I became intrigued and so I changed and I decided to pursue a bit more maths. I changed from an art science degree to a science computer science degree and um, and I, I ended up uh, in the science portion um, doing a major in mathematics but I still wasn't convinced. I wasn't the best student to tell you honestly i found it a real struggle i found the ideas very difficult um uh and um actually i went away to canada for one year and um i lived in edmonton which is a very cold place i don't know if you have heard of edmonton it's in it's in alberta it's about minus 40 good for good for skiing no it's flat it's oh, the prairies it's flat no, yeah it's flat and cold um kind and of like canberra uh, no, yeah, this Except is... Except a lot, lot colder. That's right, yeah. 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 And presumably more flat. <laughs> more flat, yeah. It's completely flat. And um, I was actually... Uh, I, I had always kind of done sort of academic work or programming work, and I wanted to kind of do something different. So I started polishing shoes. Um, and uh, while I was uh, polishing shoes, I picked up this book by a guy called James Munkris on... Topology, and this is a graduate textbook that's used at many places. And I just started sort of working through it, and I enjoyed it immensely. And I decided that uh, I was going to turn down a master scholarship that I got to the University of Alberta, and turn around and I came back to Monash and did honours in maths, and my life's been different ever since. Amazing, amazing. That's a huge change. And how about for you, Alex? What what was that that moment that got you into the the field of mathematics? Yeah, so. I, I did a lot of math in high school. Like, I, I was pretty good at it. I wasn't the best student or anything, but I was pretty good at it, so I survived. And I wasn't particularly interested in it, but I made do. And I started thinking towards the end of year 12, like, why are there all these mathematicians out there if all this stuff is so dry and boring? What are they doing? Because I knew there were mathematicians out there. You're told that there are mathematicians. And all you know about math is that it's this horrible, boring thing. So I started looking at Wikipedia. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the font of all knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to see what mathematics was. Yes. And I started seeing about all these really nice well, fields of math, like topology, like Lash was saying, or stuff in number theory, which is really just looking at properties of numbers and looking at how much you can figure out. And it's, it's quite interesting, actually. And it's the first time I was exposed to all this. So I started seriously thinking, maybe I'll go and do some math at university. And so I went to RMIT in my first year and I was doing an applied math degree. And it was it was very easy because it was a sort of easy degree. Like, not that math was easy, but they didn't expect a lot of you. And so I would just spend a lot of my free time going to the library and reading the math books. And so in my first year, I basically learned all this sort of second, third year level math because I had the time to do it. And then I saw, hey, this pure math stuff is really interesting. Why am I doing an applied math degree? Not to put down applied math, but this is how I felt in first yeah. year. So, so with that, just to define it for our audience, what's the difference between applied math and pure math? So applied math is when you're applying mathematical theory to actual problems. Yeah. We're going to talk about this a bit later. Yeah, so stuff that's yeah. actually happening in the yeah. real world, whereas yeah. pure math... And just pure math the, is just, uh, just the mathematical ideas without any thought of application or anything like this. It's and the philosoph- philosoph- philosophy? philosophy? Yeah, the, the 
philosophical side of maths, I guess. In just, a way. Just yeah. doing, doing maths for maths' sake. Exactly that. Yeah. yeah. How would you convince well, someone who's scared of maths that doing for maths for maths' sake is worthwhile? I guess people can go, oh, maths, but if it's going to help me figure out, um, you know, how the world works, that makes sense. But what's the point of doing math for yeah. math's sake? So the first thing I would say is that the stuff you do in high school is not math at all. Like, you would not do that for its own sake. That would be completely boring. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 2x plus 3y equals 5. Yeah, like, yeah. you're not going to spend your whole day solving linear equations and say, no. hey, this is great, I'm loving this. It's, like, it's not a not at all. pastime. Yeah. No, okay. I, I would start just explaining some of the basic ideas that are around in pure math. Actually expose them to some pure math, right? Like, yeah. the basic thing I could say is Pythagoras theorem like everyone learns this in high school you get a right angle triangle you've got this a squared plus b squared equals c squared business mm-hmm. and just knowing that formula is not pure math but how do you prove this how do you know this is true okay. that's pure math yeah, yeah. Right. so how do you go from saying I have a right angle triangle with these side lengths to saying well there's this relation between the side lengths like you can check it for different triangles like you can get out a ruler and measure the side lengths, but that's not going to prove it for all triangles, is it? It's just going to do it for each triangle you've looked at. Mm. How do you know this is true for all right-angle triangles? Yeah. So what's a, what's a simple uh, way you can prove it? There's a really nice way involving a picture, but I can't do this on radio. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we might, we might have to have a, have I need a to look at some pictures. Ma- right. maybe, maybe, maybe I can give you yeah, an example yeah. of, a, of a proof that I mm. think is quite accessible. Yep. So let's just uh, start with... Um, I, I know, I know that th- this is going to sound like an application, but it's it's actually really not because the core ideas are are purely mathematical. So, so let's uh, suppose um, two things. Let's say that uh, we know that the maximum number of hairs on a person's head that a person can grow is a hundred thousand, <laughs> and there are three hundred thousand people, say, in Canberra. Sure. I can I can tell you with absolute certainty that there are two people in Canberra that has the same number of hairs on their head. Just from those two assumptions alone, right? Yes, those are the there's hypotheses. There's not enough options in between zero hairs and one hundred thousand hairs exactly. for three hundred. Right. So so how does one prove this? Well, in mathematics, yeah. you know, it's a virtual world. We can do whatever we like. So I'm going to tell. Um, and since we live in a very rich country, I'm going to tell everyone to buy a house each. <laughs> well, I actually, have five. No, that no, sounds not, easy. Not, not everyone, sorry. We're going to buy 100,000 houses, so mm. it's going to be cheaper mm. for the 300,000 people. One third of the yeah. guys. I can do they a bit can, of accounting. Share, that's yeah. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then what we're going to well, it, it actually has to be 100,001 houses. So, um, And then we're going to label these houses from zero to 100,000. And then we're going to get people to count the number of hairs on their head. Okay, so we, we're going to assume that. Uh, you know, everyone's perfect and they can do it exactly right. You can assume no hairs are going to fall out as they're counting. <laughs> That's right. Yes. And no hairs are going to fall out as they're counting. Or grow as they're sort of counting along yeah. the yeah. side yeah. of their head. This is the difficulty with really taking a concrete sort of <laughs> physical example because we have to sort of uh, be distracted by reality. But mm. anyway. Um, and then we, we tell uh, everyone to walk into the house with the, with the number corresponding to the number of hairs on their head. Now, there's, uh, there's 300,000 people but only 100,000 houses. So there has to be a house out there that has more than one person in it. And that those are the two people. So I've shown that there exists two people in Canberra with the same number of hairs on their head. I cannot tell you what number of hairs it yeah. is, but I can tell you that there exists two people. Yeah. And, and so that, that actually, that concept is called the pigeonhole principle. If you have a, a number of pigeons, but the number of pigeonholes you have is less than the number of pigeons, then there has to be a pigeonhole where there is more than one pigeon. 
And so this, this is often a, applied, I think, in, um, especially in combinatorics or in finite mathematics where you know, this, kind of, this kind of reasoning is actually very important. So that's the, the concept of proof, is that it is, it's, it's eternal in some sense. You know, it's, it's not something that you, you check it for X number of cases and you say, OK, this has got to be true. It's actually true, full stop. And really, this is just about abstract ideas. Like, it doesn't matter that we took Canberra as the place we were looking at. Like, if I say, you know, at this moment, there are two people in Canberra with the exact same number of, he- of heads. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and this is actually, this is legitimately true by that proof. And it seems kind of surprising, but it's true. And it just has to be by properties of numbers. Yeah. And it didn't matter that it was Canberra. If I just took a big enough city... Yeah, going to be true. If I could, if I could just elaborate a little bit more. I mean, I took this kind of applied example, but I could have just rephrased the argument exactly in this way. I could have said, let m be the number of, um, uh, you know, let m be a number and n a number larger than m, and then I could say, suppose there are m, um, you know, slots and n things to go that the slots need to go into then one of those slots will have more than one thing right that's the that's the core idea and so there's there's nothing to do with science really there right it's just a construct it's just it's just language then you know you might have a biologist or you know someone going out there and actually counting the population or i'm not sure if biologists are the ones that count the population but maybe they establish the fact that um the the total number of hairs that's possible on a person's head is a hundred thousand so it's really at that point that uncertainty can creep in. That's, where, that's, that's the intersection of science. When you want to apply this idea to something real and then you start measuring that thing, then you start actually getting uncertainty creeping in. Because, you know, one can debate. It may be the, an incorrect kind of uh, theory that the num- maximum number of hairs on a person's head is 100,000. Or it could be um, that, the, you know, the census was wrong and they counted the number of people in the, in the city wrong. So that's really where the uncertainty creeps in. But the actual idea of, of, of pigeonholes and putting them in... Pigeons and putting them into pigeonholes, that construct, the pigeonhole principle, is an abstract con. A concept that stands irrespective of whether you know cities exist or people exist or whatever and you can apply this to a whole lot of different things like this is a stupid example like if i take i'm, I'm just going to pull numbers out of nowhere and i could very be wrong very well be wrong so hopefully i'm not but let's just say you get like 60 numbers between zero and 100 and you can prove by this sort of argument that one of them is going to have to be divisible by divisible by another one of them yeah stuff like this yeah just, okay there's so all a sorts whole of stuff you do with just things. pigeonhole principle yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, we might have to have a song to let some of that sink in. And uh, But after we get back, I want to know what actually happens in a day in the life of a mathematician for you guys. Are you sitting there with pigeons shoving them in holes or are you doing more stuff than I that? Wish. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, let's have a little bit of music. Junior James and the late guitar there with I'm Into Something Good. And I think we're into something good today here on Fuzzy Logic, talking about maths, which makes a bit of a change from the normal science, technology, that side of things that we look at. And uh, we're actually, before the the song, we mentioned uh, combinatorial mathematics and and that that sort of thing. And uh, we're we're discussing it and and talking about that that applies to things like chess and uh, Sudoku, which we actually got asked a question about on the Facebook page. When I posted earlier this week, someone asked, how about the mathematics of Sudoku uh, when we're talking about maths? Now, uh, Alex, you were saying you, you know a little bit about the maths involved with Sudoku there? A little bit. Yeah. I, I know some of the problems that are involved with it. Like, I can't solve them myself.
myself. I, I don't <laughs> know people personally who can, but I know that there are people out there who can. Yeah, because some people like write computer programs to help solve them and that sort yeah. of thing. But so the thing with a Sudoku that you get in the newspaper is you're given the nine by nine grid and you're given a bunch of numbers, and you know that there's a solution to it. Yeah, there has to be a solution to it, and you know that there's going to be a unique solution to it. There's if you've got it right, you, there's only one way to get it right, and there is one way. There's not two ways, there's not zero ways, there's only one way of doing it. Yeah, because that's right. the whole point, isn't it? They give yeah. you the numbers in there, so yeah. there is just one. Yeah. yeah. And so the problem is kind of, if you're given a just a 9 by 9 grid with some numbers in it, Sudoku style, and you if you don't know that it's got a solution, how can you find out that it has a solution? And how can you find out that it has only one? Because if I give you just a blank 9 by 9 grid, you know there are going to be a lot of solutions. And if yeah. I give you a 9 by 9 grid, which already violates the Sudoku rule that you've got, like, the nine numbers in the row and not repeating, you know, there's no solutions. Yep. So there's going to be points in between where you've got more than one solution or where you've got no solution. Mm. And the question is kind of, how do you tell? And you can do this computationally. Like, you can write in a program that will just try to solve it and eventually it will say, look, there's no solutions or look, here's all solutions I can get. But this is going to be quite slow. And the question kind of becomes, how can I do this efficiently? And this becomes a question in, uh, in theoretical computer science, really, more than pure math, but it's, it's kind of part of pure math. It's um, algorithmic complexity. And how efficient can you make this algorithm? Yeah. I've, I've yeah. wondered that on planes before as well. I only do Sudokus when I'm on a plane, so a couple of times a year, and occasionally when I've got really frustrated, gone, maybe there is no answer. Maybe they didn't give me enough information. Oh, maybe they don't know. Well, if they didn't give you enough information, maybe there'd be more than one solution. This is typically what would happen. And... It's usually if they've given you too much information, you can't solve it because there's some inconsistencies in the information they've given. So I should be grateful that there's not as... I shouldn't be asking for more numbers, really. I should Yeah, actually, if you've got, like, not enough information, there's more of a chance that there'll be more than one solution. And when they're devising that Sudoku puzzle, they have to do it in such a way that you know there's only one. The question could then become, if you've got a Sudoku puzzle in a newspaper, which you know has a solution, could I remove some numbers and still have only one solution? Mm. Mm. What are the right. key most important numbers to keep there to keep it with yeah. one solution, yeah. I guess? And sort of how, how far could you take it? Like, how many could you remove without suddenly making it too easy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So as you both being mathematicians, we're talking about the day in the life of a mathematician. Do you guys spend your day doing Sudoku and, and those sorts of no. number puzzles? No. Only on planes. <laughs> it's like the Big Bang Theory where you stare at equations with music in the background and you pull different faces because that's how I imagine mathematicians work. Yeah, the theoretical physics, they get the mm. eye of the tiger cranking exactly. and that sort of thing. Well, what, I mean, I'm curious because I think people imagine scientists in labs and that sort of thing, but what do mathematicians do in yeah. a typical day? Yeah, I, I, I get into the office and I, I sit and I think about some math and I read some books and write some things. And I, I write a lot of things. Like I don't just stare at an equation and think like... Yeah. You write down a lot. You basically think on paper. You have to sort of write down everything you're thinking, and I can't think of a better way to put it than that. But yeah, so and I don't literally spend the entire day thinking about and doing math. I'll come in <laughs> and I'll do that for a couple of hours, and then I'll go for a walk because I'm too tired. Like, yeah, yeah. okay. And then I'll come back and do some more math. Yeah. How about yeah. for you? Yeah, you? look, um, my supervisor Alan McIntosh is a really great guy. Mm. He was. I was just having a conversation, and he was saying that this is kind of the trouble with maths you know if you're kind of working on a car or if you're sort of you know putting plaster on a wall or um you know if you're in a lab or whatever people won't just come and interrupt you because they kind of see that you're doing something Mm. but mathematicians as mathematicians we kind of sit in a chair with a piece of paper or stare in front of a blackboard and people think you're doing nothing 
and, and this is something that Alan was telling me that you know this is often would happen because it it appears as if you're doing nothing. Well, and surely that would be more frustrating too because when you're putting together a car, you slowly see the pieces come together and you're building up a car. Whereas when you're just sitting there thinking, you, you're not seeing anything building up in front of you. Doesn't that make you it so difficult? Thinking for days, and you might not get anything decent out of it yeah. for weeks or months or whatever. And then suddenly one day you'll have some flash of insight and you'll solve the problem. Well, actually, yeah. it's it's I don't think it's it's so different because I mean mm. when even when you're working on a car, you, you may kind of hit obstacles. You may come across problems. You know, you might sort of go to a certain point, you've put something back together and you go, ah, you know, this isn't just done right. And you've got to dismantle things a bit. And often it's like that in mathematics, but the entire world is kind of mental. You know, it's completely virtual and it's in your head. And and I don't know if you guys have seen the, um, the TV series Columbo. No, no, no. That's something you have to get into because it's it's an inverse murder. So so it starts off. uh, It's featuring Peter Falk. Um, I think some of your listeners probably would have seen it. Mm, It was very popular from sort of 1972, and the last episode was in 2005, actually. Yeah. Um, prescription Murder, 1972, to Columbo Likes the Nightlife, 2005. Well, we've definitely got a fan. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but the remarkable thing about it is it is insightful in the way that mathematics works and mathematicians work because you get to see the murder to begin with. I mean, of course, in mathematics, you don't always know what the solution is. You have a, a hunch that something might be true. Right. And yeah. this is what this is what Columbo has all throughout the way when he's solving the murder mystery because the really the show is about how he solves it. He has mm. some intuition, you know, he has a hunch that something has happened and, and some person is guilty. And throughout what he does is he tries to show beyond all doubt, not beyond all reasonable doubt, beyond all doubt, like he makes the person actually incriminate themselves mm-hmm. by sort of placing certain obstacles and catching them out and so on and so forth. And it's a very subtle game that he plays and sometimes it beats him and he needs to try bold tricks in order to actually sort of, you know, get the actual, uh, the, the, the murderer to sort of, to, to a place where there is essentially a confession that, that they did it. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Often mathematics is like that. You, you kind of have an idea of what you want to prove. You know, you've seen a body of work before and you've developed a certain intuition, some insight into why something, you know, what, why you, you have some reasons as to why you believe a statement is true. And then typically throughout the day, I would kind of sit there and try different things and try and sort of... Sh- try and uh, get up to proving this thing by, by showing smaller things and getting distracted by more interesting problems here and there. And, and that's typically the day of the, in, the, in the life of a mathematician. And, and the point is that, that it's, it's a constant thing. You know? It's not that you come into the lab and then you do a bit of maths and it stops. You know, for me, it happens when I'm cycling or you know, when I'm sort of at a cafe or, or wherever. Uh, and, and that is really why I think mathematicians are very blessed because you shouldn't ever be bored as a mathematician. You know? I usually You've spend half my day walking around outside. <laughs> right. So if it is all up in your head then, yeah. like, do you find it hard to switch off? Cause you don't yeah. need to. You don't need to. <laughs> it's that good. There Surely. you go. Just oh, you yeah, know, if, if you wanted to switch off, it's definitely hard to switch off. Yeah. And you, yeah. you stop trying to switch off. You let ideas come to you whenever you want, and if you're not having ideas coming to you, you just don't mind. You just don't think about it. Okay. And so you don't you don't get to the office at nine and think, okay, now I think math until five and then leave, because you might get to the office and not have any good ideas anyway. Like yeah. at that point, you say, well, too bad. I'm going to go for a walk. 
and then you might be at home having a shower that night and you suddenly you've got an idea and you, you write your proof on the mirror and <laughs> I, had, I had a good paper come out this way yeah so <laughs> do, you, do you have writing materials like blackboards just strung up everywhere mm. I manufacture them actually you- <laughs> <laughs> yeah when I work out I get a lot of ideas so yeah. I have a blackboard in my garage um, and often I, I do mathematics just in between. I, I mean, for, I think Alex is probably better at dealing with, with, with sort of uh, not switching off than me, but I find it horrendously difficult, and, um, and I do go a bit crazy, especially when I start working on something new. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's almost like starting a new affair or something, you know? Like these, it, it is a very emotional thing for me. Mathematics is, is really an emotional activity. All these ideas, they have personalities. There's things they can do, and there's things that you don't know that they can can do you know and you try and push push them to actually do things and they become your friends you know they they kind of you go okay well this looks like uh this looks like where i need to use the triangle inequality or this looks like where i need to invoke the quotient schwartz inequality so these things become your friends and you know what they're capable of and then sometimes you're surprised because you can kind of do one of these things to solve something you know that you really want you've been thinking about solving and it becomes easy and you go oh okay it's this friend of mine that can actually do this <laughs> so so you build an attachment to, to these ideas actually oh, well i do anyway yeah. and um and so yeah it's it's uh it, it's an emotional exercise and it's kind of very difficult for me to switch off um but it happens it's kind of highs and lows that's how it work and where do you see yourself going with math because both of you are uh, um uh, at, at the ANU now, but you know, are you going to continue into it? And, and will your brain get get tired of, of math at some point? You know, are you going to reach the point of where it's just too much, and your brain doesn't have that processing power anymore? If it does, then I'll stop. <laughs> like, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do, is that a thing with mathematicians? Do they reach a, a certain age and it's just not quite the same? And they some people burn out and leave, yeah. and this will generally happen fairly early on. A lot of the more competitive students tend to burn out towards the end of <laughs> undergrad because they realise they're not the best. Oh, okay. And you have, you have to do a lot of coping with the fact you're not the best. If, if you don't want to be the best anyway, then there's, there's nothing to cope with, right? Yeah. But if you're competitive, this can be very hard. But a lot of mathematicians just go on and they do it for their whole lives and they retire and they don't stop anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Paul, Paul Erdos is the person that comes to mind. There's yeah. a great book about him, The Man Who Only Loved Numbers. I mean, he, he went right into his 90s proving theorems. And so... I think I think perhaps you know there's this kind of uh, misconception uh, maybe that uh, you know all the good mathematics that someone does is when they're young and maybe that was true in the olden days you know with with all sorts of diseases mm. lur- lurking about um, etc that um, you know and mathematicians. You, Contrary to popular belief, I think throughout history they've been quite sort of extreme, sort of interesting characters. You know, Yves Galois died in a in a duel at um, at the age of I think twenty one, and he invented this entire field of Galois theory. I think the night before he died in his prison cell, he kind of wrote everything that he knew down. Wow! So um, yeah, there's there's a lot of characters like that, and people have died young, but I think. You know, I've certainly met many mathematicians in the modern day and age who are well into their kind of, you know, elderly years mm-hmm. still doing very good mathematics. But historically, we tend to remember the extreme characters. Like, you look in the past and you remember all the really extreme mathematicians who had crazy lives and died at 21 in duels or whatever, but there are a lot of normal mathematicians out there. You just don't really see them. Mm. I guess on that topic, when you talk about, you know, remembering amazing and different people, we think Mm. about stereotypes and scientists. They're often stereotyped as being a bit bumbling and a bit socially awkward and old men with white lab coats. And I guess in my experience, mathematicians are stereotyped probably in a similar way, minus the lab coat and with a big 
bigger blackboard. But in your experience, surely not all scientists fit that stereotype. Do you think that's what would be a more accurate way to describe people who are into into mathematics? I'd say we don't overall fit the stereotype. I mean, there are definitely some that do. There are always going to be some that do. But overall, like, the type of people who are mathematicians is extremely varied. Yeah. There, there are some common threads there, but not the ones you'd think. Like, we all tend to be a bit on the creative side and sort of a bit imaginative, I guess. I think perhaps maybe it's because the nature of both science and mathematics has actually... Uh, doing science and mathematics has really changed. Uh, I think, you know, that there was perhaps um, greater scope in the past for being a solitary genius... But I think now it's um, it's very difficult to progress and do uh, just because the world has become more complicated. Our ideas and our perspective, our theories of the world, they've become more complicated. I think collaboration has become a, a sort of a fundamental sort of quantity in um, or entity in actually um, progress. And so, because of that, maybe um, scientists and mathematicians nowadays are, are more s- selected. You know, the, 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 kind, the kind that kind of survives are the ones that are maybe a little bit more social, that are happy to work with other people and so on and so forth. Yeah. That's certainly been my experience. I, I haven't really come across too much of the solitary genius type. Although the, the one exception to this is Grigory Perelman, who I think was worked very solitarily, and he um, settled something called the, the Poncari uh, conjecture, which was a 100-year-old problem. It was solved in 2005. And um, he's quite reclusive, and he uh, declined the million dollars that the Clay Mathematics Institute uh, offered for the prize. Um, He declined the prize itself, and uh, he also didn't want to be awarded the Fields Medal, from what I understand. And, um, yeah, so now he lives with his mum in St. Petersburg. Wow. After solving one of the most remarkable and difficult problems, you know, in the past And he doesn't really do any more math now, does he? Oh, I don't know. I, I think he I quit after that. Yeah. yeah. Frustrated with <laughs> well, the mathematics. He solved it. That's all you done. need to do. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do after that? Uh, well, after, in a little bit, we might have a chat about uh, uh, a famous mathematician from the past who, who we recognised earlier this week with Ada Lovelace Day, um, and that's a very famous female mathematician. Uh, but for now, let's have a bit more music. The polyphonic spree there with light and day reach for the sun. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XX Community Radio. Time is 12.14 and today on Fuzzy we are talking maths. We've got uh, Lashy and Alex in the studio with us and also from Fuzzy we've got Alice uh, joining us and... uh, We've been talking about the life of a mathematician and what these guys actually do. Uh, But for now, I wanted to go back into the past a little bit because earlier this week was Ada Lovelace Day, uh, which is in the middle of October each year. And uh, Ada Lovelace is a female mathematician from uh, back in the day when females didn't really do math at all. Um, and I'm so, sure there was lots of maths in baking bread and mopping <laughs> the floor broad. Well, that unknown maths, yeah. But it was, I mean, it was back in the time where you know, women didn't go to university, they didn't do science, they didn't do maths, they didn't do anything. But clearly they were some of the best out there. I mean, Marie Curie won her two Nobel Prizes and uh, one of the, a fantastic... Um, Scientists, but Ada Lovelace had a huge effect on the world of computing um, because, you know, over the last 60 years, computers have had a big effect on us. But uh, she was part of the um, team that in- invented the first computer really nearly 200 years ago. Um, 
and uh, created one of the first computer programs. Uh, Lovelace is an interesting person in her birth. She was born to the famous English poet Lord Byron, uh, who was described by one of his lovers as a mad, bad and dangerous man to know. Um, But only a month after her birth, her parents separated uh, due to Byron's scandalous affair with his half-sister. And uh, so Lord Byron went abroad, never to see his daughter again. And instead, uh, Ayla Lovelace was raised by her mother, Anne. Um, Now, her mother was an unusual person in that uh, she had a passion for mathematics herself. Uh, So she was... uh, Mathematician and her ex-husband once called her the Princess of Parallelograms, uh, was what she was known as. Um, and she made sure her daughter had an excellent education in all subjects, particularly in maths, um, which was quite unusual at the time, as I said earlier, because women weren't allowed to go to university or join learned societies. Uh, but Lovelace excelled in mathematics and was encouraged by another female mathematician, Mary Somerville, um, to, to continue but at the age of uh, 17, Ada Lovelace met Charles Babbage, um, who's one of the, the early pioneers of computing. Um, you know, because back in the early 1800s, uh, there weren't computers as we know them now. Instead, they were a different sort of computer. Um, well, in fact, there was a computer which really was a person, um, and their job was to, to manually and arduously calculate uh, and find the values of things like logarithms and trigonometric functions and that sort of thing. And because it was all done by hand, um, there were mistakes happening and uh, and on these mathematical tables, but they were used by astronomers and navigators and other people. Um, but because of this, this hand calculation and that sort of stuff going on, Charles Babbage uh, decided to create a machine which he called the Difference Engine, uh, which was designed to perform these calculations automatically. Uh, and this was the age of steam, so there wasn't electricity to help run these calculators. It was uh, a difference engine was envisaged as a mechanical machine, you know, brass cogs, moving pistons, powered by turning a crank or by steam. And uh, it's just uh, amazing the way it could work. But while they were the developing this, Babbage was then thinking about something called the analytical engine, which is even more closely related to computers now because it would be able to store data and perform sequences of instructions defined on punch cards that were fed into the machine, Uh, much like the jacquard loom of the time, which was basically a a self-weaving loom that would follow these patterns of punch cards. Um, And so the idea was that the analytical engine could be programmed to do uh, anything that the punch cards said. Now, Ada Lovelace uh, saw the prototype difference engine and was absolutely fascinated by it and the possibilities of the plans for Babbage's analytical engine. Uh, So she began to correspond with Babbage and uh, work with him. And she was actually translating uh, an Italian scientist's report on one of Babbage's lectures um, because she had her own trouble in publishing science as a woman. Um, But in the end, uh, Babbage and Lovelace, through their correspondence, agreed that uh, Lovelace should add her own notes to this translation, uh, with the addition making it three times the length of the original work with all the stuff she added. Um, And her translation and extended notes uh, became one of the most important works describing this uh, hypothetical analytical engine. And in fact, the notes contain the first published computer program. Um, her program was designed uh, to calculate Bernoulli numbers um, and it had instructions on how to do that and, of course, doesn't look much like what we think of as computer code now, um, but if it was uh, translated into these punch cards and fed into a punch card computer, it would actually work. 
Um, so Lovelace was a huge pioneer of programming and mathematics and the um, analytical engine and computing, and uh, she saw far beyond Babbage's uh, vision for just you know using these things for calculations. Uh, she could see that the instructions and data didn't have to be numbers, but they could be... Uh, Letters, images, or even music, uh, which is pretty amazing when you consider um, how long ago this was. Uh, you know, I mean, music and letters and images have just become commonplace now um, as part of uh, mathematics, but uh, Lovelace was, was thinking about it back then. Uh, unfortunately, uh, her health deteriorated following the publication of the notes, and uh, many people felt that this was because she lacked a new mathematical project to work on um, even though she th- thought that she'd follow with more publications. Unfortunately her uh, health and work deteriorated and she died of cancer in 1852 aged just 36 um, which is kind of a, a sad uh, story really in that this brilliant mind uh, was repressed because she was a woman Uh, But now we recognise her with Ada Lovelace Day in the middle of October each year and uh, we recognise the amazing work that was done working on computers and and mathematics way back in the 1800s. So does this day celebrate her birthday or the day that this paper was released or do we know what it actually acknowledges in particular? No, I don't. (laughs) To be honest, her birthday is uh, December 10th, 1815. Um, So it doesn't celebrate that and it doesn't... uh, I don't have the date of her death. So I don't know why it's been chosen as this date, um, but that is the date in the middle of October each year uh, where we remember Ada Lovelace. Um, but look, let's come back into the, the present now, I guess. Um, we've been talking a lot about maths today with uh, Lashi and Alex and uh, talking about pure mathematics, which is what you guys work on, which is math for math's sake, um, so to speak. Although I see you cringe every time I say that, Lashi. Well, you don't like that. Well, no, I guess, yeah, I, I guess I don't, I don't want to sort of uh, label mathematics, especially for sort of the audience of this show is just something that we just sit around and do just for the sake of doing it. I mean, there are good reasons as to why we want to prove these things, the, the kind of things that, that that at least I work on and Alex works on as well. And, and you know, the, the deep down we, we hope that there will be some applicability of these things um, someday to, to something. It's just that, uh, you know, without inventing kind of the language of mathematics just as the example i gave before with mm. um with einstein's theory of relativity and you know it resting upon kind of the the shoulders of the giant that riemann created as romanian geometry mm. um y- y- you know the the thing is that there's good reason um in order for us to progress in order for us to build technologies in order for us to do science um there's very good reason as to why we should continue to do mathematics yeah. so. well that's right i suppose it's, yeah, it's building that language so we can say the right things in science and explain and what's make the right happening. conclusions yeah. yeah and draw the right conclusions when we can observe things you know yeah. and there were a lot of um, ideas that started out as theoretical ideas that have as you say down the track led to really practical applications things like wi-fi technology mm. well, had well, their genesis let me let me give you the most kind of concrete example it's actually the concept of a computer because when when Alan Turing wrote down the notion of a Turing machine, mm. it was actually to solve a very abstract problem in logic. 
It wasn't for the purposes of constructing a machine that has, you know, a, a central processor and memory and so on and so forth. In mm. fact, our computers... So the, the notion of a Turing machine is that's not a physical machine. That's actually a mathematical machine, yeah. right? I mean, it's called a machine, but it's just actually a mathematical construct. Mm. And a Turing machine is, has a lot more expressibility than our computers today because it actually has an infinite tape of memory. And really, um, what... Alan Turing was interested in was uh, asking questions about proofs. There's actually a very deep relationship between proofs and programs. And this has kind of been lost because the notion of programs has taken over, you know, and now we see programs everywhere from from our computers to our um, smartphones to everything. But yeah. actually there's a very deep relationship between concepts of proofs and programs. And, and so the commercial application of Turing machines, which von Neumann um, kind of recognised, uh, that came about 10 years um, sort of after uh, Alan Turing initially came up with this notion of, um, of, of a Turing machine. But there was a theorem in, in Alan Turing's paper and it was the existence of a universal Turing machine. And that's kind of the most important thing. And tying that back to the analytical engine, yeah. the analytical engine or a calculator or whatever, these are called fixed-type programs because you can't... You cannot, it can only perform one task. But the, the remarkable thing about our computers is that we can load up a calculator application or a word, word processing application, etc. Yeah. And in fact, Alan Turing knew this from way back because the existence of a universal Turing machine, that, that theorem says that you can, take, you can encode programs in a way. You can construct a Turing machine such that on the tape of this Turing machine, you can give the program... Oh, an, another Turing machine encoded on the tape and data and you can process it and that's exactly what our computers do today so this abstract idea of, of this this abstract computer is what we know today as as a very important uh, sort of development in technology and, and everything rests on it so if I could give any example, any argument to convince people why pure mathematics is important, that would be it. I mean, the reason Alan Turing was doing all, all this wasn't so that he could build a computer that would run all these applications. He just did it because it was interesting. Mm. And he was using it to solve a, pro <laughs> a problem in logic that was interesting to him and to a lot of other mathematicians. Yeah. And he just, you follow what's interesting and you get a lot of decent math out of it and maybe in the future you can use that. You get, a, you get better math out of just doing what's interesting than trying to solve a problem that's a real world problem. Yeah, yeah, and and just just also to kind of really drive home the point, there was there were two very brilliant number theorists early in the century, um, G. H. Hardy and uh, Ramanujan. Ramanujan was was this Indian uh, sort of uh, clerk who just came up with these brilliant things, and and Hardy was I think at Cambridge, and he brought Ramanujan over to um, Cambridge, and actually I believe Ramanujan was the first uh, non sort of uh, British person to be admitted to the Royal Society. Um, he died very young from tuberculosis, unfortunately. But um, Ramanujan, uh, sorry, G.H. Uh, Hardy wrote something called a mathematician's apology, which in essence just says that nothing I've done is useful. Um, you know, I've just done it for the sake of doing it. But today, 80 years later, because these guys were in the, I think, the 20s or the 30s, um, it's th their, their work is used primarily in e-commerce. So yes. <laughs> there you go, you know, the, the, the yeah. kind of... Uh, and no one could predict e-commerce way back not. 80s. Absolutely ago. not. Yeah. And, and, and they were interested in these number theoretic properties just for the sake of 
the beauty of mathematics. So I think I said this maybe before when we were waiting in the living room, but uh, mathematics is like sex. You know, of course there are pra- practical applications, but that's not the why we. Uh, that's not the reason why we do it. <laughs> Usually, <laughs> I love that description of it. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Now, the one thing we haven't actually covered um, uh, today is what mathematics you guys actually do when you're researching at the moment, because you guys have big focus areas in your your research. Um, we've got two and a half minutes left in the show. How quickly can we summarise this? Go for it, Alex. Come on. Okay, I'll try. Um, <laughs> very broadly, what I'm looking at is, is geometry, very broadly. But geometry, which instead of being sort of nice and smooth or regular, is, is more rough and irregular. Okay, so geometry being the same shapes and yeah. that sort of thing. If so you imagine things like spheres and cubes and all this, these are nice and regular. Cubes yeah. aren't particularly smooth because they've got sharp corners, but they're pretty <laughs> much smooth. But yeah. imagine things that have a lot more corners, things that are more rough and things uh, that maybe aren't so symmetric like yeah, spheres and cubes are. Yeah, so not like a, a D20 dice or something not like, like a that. Not like a D20 because that's nice still got a quite, like, quite rich symmetry. Yeah, but yeah. just a, a random shaped rock. Just random shape. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Like they might be regular and a lot of things in nature are like this. So you pick up a rock off the ground, it's not going to be smooth or symmetric generally. Yeah. So why restrict yourself to smooth and symmetric things? Yeah. yeah. And so you're looking at ways to describe that sort ways of stuff of describing using that. Math. Ways of analysing them using math. Yeah. Stuff like this. Okay, that's a pretty good one-minute summary. Mm. How about yourself, Lashi? Yeah, look, uh, yeah, I, I kind of work in the intersection of um, harmonic analysis, which is really about kind of sort of breaking down things into smaller parts and looking at invariance of scale and its application to geometry. So there's been a lot of developments over the last 20 years in harmonic analysis, but, um, yeah, I've been interested in seeing whether these results can carry over to a more geometric setting, and that's, that's what I've done in my PhD. Yeah. Fantastic. Very interesting stuff. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Lashi and Alex. It's been a pleasure to have you on and uh, talk in a, a language that we don't often talk about here on Fuzzy Logic, talk in the language of maths. And uh, I've certainly uh, picked up a lot and learned a lot about what mathematicians actually do, which is really good to hear. So thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks for having us. And thank you for joining us too, Alice, to be on the board. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Fantastic. Now, if you've enjoyed today's episode, it will be podcast online, as we always do. Just head to fuzzylogic on 2xx.podbean.com or you can download it from iTunes. Just type in Fuzzy Logic into iTunes and we're the one with the little autumn leaf uh, logo. If you want to stay in touch with us during the week, we do have our Facebook page as well. Just type in Fuzzy Logic and search for us there, and uh, we'd love your contributions there. And uh, if you've got any questions for us as well, you can ask them on the Facebook page. But thanks very much for joining us today, listeners. Uh, I hope you enjoyed today's show, and uh, tune in again same time next week, 11.30am, here on 98.3FM, 2XX Community Radio, for Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.